and we did anybody to come back across that picket line. We was for real. We was going to do what they had to do. Because uh, we were sick and tired of being sick and tired. The Memphis Sanitation Workers' Strike of 1968 lasted two months, but its impact would be felt for many years. I'm Lee Saunders, the president of the American Federation of State, County, and Municipal Employees. In this episode of the I Am Story podcast, we look at the impact the strike had on the lives of the people involved and the challenges workers have faced in the years since. The agreement the sanitation workers reached with the city in 68 gave the workers a seat at the table and secured a variety of new benefits, including a 15 cent an hour raise. It didn't pull them out of poverty, but over time, with our union pushing, their salaries began to rise. For Cleo Smith, who was one of the strikers, life slowly got better. Oh yeah, definitely, yeah. We was able to live, you know, comfortable. My rent went up, which I didn't mind. Bought my first uh, brand new car in 1978. Bought my first brand new car. <laughs> a Chevrolet. I'm a Chevrolet person. Matter of fact, I got a Chevrolet sitting out there. Uh, moved out the project, moved into a home in Westwood, uh, taught my children how to go to school, get an education. All of them come out of school, uh, got their own homes. So one of them is a, a school teacher. Uh, one of my daughters, she's called uh, in-home, I guess, cook. I told her, I said, Gary, you need to just open you a business. God. I mean, they be at a house and she got a license, you know. And on, like on Sunday, they be lined up for me over yonder to the building, coming to pick up the food. Uh, one of my other sons, he works at Corcus, a barbecue. He got his own home, lived down the streets out there from where I live at. So if you're ever in Memphis, go to Corcus Barbecue. <laughs> <laughs> Two years ago, a producer friend and myself I interviewed sanitation workers that were still alive and their families, which was an, an incredible uh, experience for me personally. Richard Copley, the young photographer who was caught up in the strike's most embattled moments, has continued to follow the story of the strikers. To see that the, these families of these garbage men, as they were called, would turn up and be business people, restaurateurs, ministers, successful, successful families. So that, uh, that to me was very, uh, very important. Bill Lucy, the young ASME staffer who became a lead negotiator in the strike, watched over the years and saw how the strike changed attitudes among public workers. Now, these were people who had spent the better part of their adult life working for a city, taking orders from a racist supervisor, and uh, 
in the end, we just had a complete change of mind in terms of how people viewed themselves. These were the days when the public sector was really getting out of the notion that they are public servants uh, as opposed to public employees. You know, the workers were beginning to understand. We do the same things in the public sector that workers do in the private sector. Uh, The private sector has the right to organize, negotiate agreements. We're not. So uh, New Orleans, uh, Birmingham, the employees themselves were beginning to recognize their rights. Uh, And some were trying to organize, maybe not succeeding. Others were succeeding. Within a few years of the strike, Bill Lucy would become a pivotal leader in the labor movement as secretary-treasurer of AFSCME. He co-founded the New Coalition of Black Trade Unionists. And later, he played a central role in the U.S. campaign to end apartheid in South Africa. In the wake of the Memphis strike, there was an explosion of public sector organizing. With President Jerry Wirth leading the charge, AFSCME would expand to almost one and a half million members. But in recent years, labor laws have become more restrictive, and it's a steep uphill battle now for most workers to organize and improve their working conditions. AFSCME President Lee Saunders. Many of the rights that Dr. King fought for, that labor unions continue to fight for, that our communities continue to fight for, are in jeopardy. You have workers who are organizing all over the country, all over the country. I mean, unions right now are very popular. 71% of the population believes that unions are absolutely necessary. But when you go up against a company like Amazon or Starbucks, because of the way that the labor law currently exists, they can stall, they can stop progress, they will do everything possible not to go to the table and sit down with their workers and negotiate wages and benefits and working conditions. In Memphis itself, sanitation workers and their union leaders are still fighting some of the same battles that workers did back in 1968. Yes, A lot of things have changed. We're not putting the garbage on top of our head with the tubs anymore. But the lack of dignity and respect because of what we do, that's why they treat us the way they do. My name is uh, Maurice Spivey, and I am the uh, staff rep for Aspen Local 1733. They look at us based on the job we do. And they think that you can't be too smart or too intelligent or we really don't care about you because, okay, you out there, you dumping garbage all day. You a garbage man. They don't believe that our backs get sore, our knees go out, and this is going to knock your socks off. 5% of the garbage trucks have air conditioning. Only 5%. You talking about the heat in Memphis, Tennessee, and you're doing some hard work on that garbage truck. That's what we're dealing with. 
you out there working, you overheat, and you, you get into a cab that has no air, and you sitting on a motor, you're passing out. When I go to the landfill to dump my truck, I'm out there in a line, a long line, and you look around and you the only truck out there with your windows rolled down. O'Shawn Smith, sanitation worker, been to the city 25 years. I'm the elected chapter chairperson of ASME. I'm, I'm not gonna say we're dealing with everything they dealt with in six days, because I can walk in City Hall without a dog biting me or without being beat with a bitty club. That has changed. But we have a lot of people in charge now that they're just not hearing us. And you come in the room, they're turning their nose up at you, looking at you sideways, because of the job you do. But everybody got to do, somebody has to do the job. Someone has to do these dirty jobs. Someone has to do these so-called less fortunate jobs. That's why I, don't, I tell my kids, you don't make fun of anybody for no job they do. Because somebody got to be working Wendy's. Everybody can't feel this big and above and be a director or HR person. So you have to respect everybody. That's the key thing, respect. We have men and women who are temporary employees. Uh, they call them temps, we call them our brothers. They're still Memphis sanitation workers, whether they're permanent or not. And they have less rights than the men and women had in 1968. They're not under the contract. The city can fire them at the drop of a hat. The city can work them up to 10 hours a day. And even for the permanent guys, I got fired for speaking up. One of the first things the sanitation workers won in the 1968 strike was the right to have holidays off. And it's important to them, being able to celebrate Christmas and New Year's with their families. And ever since we've had a contract, we've never worked on any holidays. Then out of the blue, with no warning, a new schedule comes out and suddenly they're told, forget about holidays, you're working. So I walk up and now I see the calendar where we have to work on Christmas and New Year's. And it is very heated. It is very contentious. And I'm trying to defuse the situation. And I'm like, hold on, man, y'all calm down. Calm down. Let him talk. Let him say what he got to say. And then, you know, we'll, we have something to say. And so when the supervisor got through in his very arrogant and very disrespectful way, he said, man, y'all going to work on Christmas? It ain't a damn thing the union can do about it. Y'all work for the city. The union don't pay y'all. So once he got through this spiel, I turned around and I told him, I said, look, y'all, we're going to have to fight for it. Right now, y'all still got your holidays off. Right now, you still got Christmas. You still got New Year's. And if you take those days off, the city's going to discipline you. They're going to punish you. But I advise you not to start working on your holidays because you will establish a past practice that the city can look to and say, hey, they worked on Christmas in 2021. We can make them work on Christmas in 2022. And that was my statement. And that is why they fired me. As their union rep, Maurice was telling the workers what their rights were. But the city accused him of trying to provoke a strike, which the union is not allowed to do. Maurice lost his job for more than a year. And this is during the pandemic. This is during the crisis, right before Christmas. Yeah, during the pandemic. So uh, some past due notices start rolling in. So a lot of things that we used to do, we couldn't do anymore. There's no more going out. Uh, the grocery bill got a lot shorter. 
I mean, you, can you imagine? Okay, you've been doing something for you know almost two decades, and all of a sudden, <laughs> you wake up and you don't have to do it. My my children, especially my my youngest child at the time, she was sixteen. Uh, she cried for two hours. You know, she just couldn't believe. She said, Daddy, they just don't want you to be a part of the union. They hate that you're a part of the union. In my opinion, this strike came about because of a series of... Governments around the country have put up roadblocks to union building. One of the main obstacles now is similar to the biggest hurdle in the 1968 strike. And it's been the one that the newspapers have given their blackest headlines to. And that is the matter of the dues deduction. This is where an employee authorizes his employer in writing to deduct a sum of money from his wages and forward it to the union. It's being done all over this country. There are literally millions During the strike, Ask Me President Jerry Wirth had to find a clever workaround so the sanitation workers could pay union dues, which allowed them to build their union. In recent years, anti-labor politicians and industrial leaders have tried to bust unions using so-called right-to-work laws. Because of a recent Supreme Court decision two years ago, the Janus case, the entire public sector is now right-to-work. Right-to-work essentially means that you have workers that are covered in a bargaining unit, but if they choose not to be a part of the union... They don't have to pay dues. They don't have to do any of those kinds of things, yet they still receive the same benefits that workers receive. That's a way of gutting unions, of tearing apart our fabric. And I think Dr. King understood that. He understood that there will be people that will constantly stand in your way. The only way that you deal with that is by linking arms around the issues that we've been talking about and say all of us are in the same boat here. Okay, and let's do something about this. And labor leaders have learned many lessons over the years, like how to run national campaigns to push back against anti-union laws. But much of ASME's work is still fighting for workers at the ground level. And in Memphis, Maurice Spivey, who was accused of trying to start a strike, he got his job back. I just got the news back that um, I won my civil service case, you know, 100%. And I, uh, when the word got out that I had won my case, I probably got 120 phone calls that day. It was that mean because morale was so low. So that's why I'm going back. Uh, they can say it's ego, but I just want to be able to let them know that I hold up the bloodstained banner for equality, for labor. And that blood is stained with Dr. King wounds okay I know that I stand on the shoulders of giants I stand on those men's shoulders you know and, and it's I, I I do it proudly so yes I'm going back I'm gonna go back to the <laughs> the heat the rain the bad trucks and all of it because I know why I know why In the final years of his life, Martin Luther King created the Poor People's Campaign. He was trying to bring attention to the extreme poverty that so many Americans, especially black Americans, were living in. And that's why he joined the sanitation workers in Memphis to help them fight for something better. His son, Martin Luther King III, 
is continuing his work today. The fact of the matter is there's still this huge gap between black wealth and white wealth. And that gap has to be closed. That's what dad was talking about. The average black family prior to the pandemic had about $18,000 saved up. The average white family, $180,000. It's much lower now because of the pandemic just wiped a lot of people out, black and, and white families. So, you know, we have to continue to debate in this country about how do we empower those who are in different jobs that don't pay large wages. And that's, to me, one of the challenges that we have you know, in, in America, because we love the fact that you can be a business person, start a business, and become a multimillionaire. But everybody's not going to be able to do that. If our society is ever going to become what it ought to become, then we got to focus on those who are really doing the, the, the work every day, the, the labor, the, the grunt work. If we started off with the notion of dignity and respect, at the end of the day, we would have done something very good. We don't always, in fact, maybe more times than not, we haven't started with that notion. We started with, this is what the pay is for this job. And if you want the job, you, you do it, you know. So I, I, I think we have a history uh, of not addressing conditions that certainly affect the poor in our nation. The 1968 strike didn't just help the workers gain a union. It also created a clear, powerful vocabulary that activists have used right up until today. They came up with, I am a man. Simple, simple slogan that said everything. I am a man. And you can still see signs today. People still use that slogan, saying, I am a man, because... It shows that people, everyone, deserves respect and dignity and to be treated fairly. There was unquestionable courage in all of these men who put themselves on the front line. And, and you know, we can never say thank you enough for what they did that opened up rights for others around the nation. I think that's the other part of it. You know, to some degree— uh, the Black Lives Matter movement, even you know, now 50 years later, that's basically all people are saying. Uh, treat me with dignity and respect. When they say Black Lives Matter, it, that's, that's what it means. And it, that old adage, you know, biblically, do unto others as you would have them do unto you, that, that we as a society have not yet learned. But making America a better place for everyone to live and work in takes a lot of people, putting in time to fight the good fight. The Memphis strike succeeded, in large part, because hundreds of church ministers stepped up and joined it. They came from all different denominations, which Dr. King was happy to see when he came to Memphis. We have Baptist, Methodist, Presbyterian. Episcopalians, members of the Church of God in Christ, 
and members of the Church of Christ in God. We're all together. Most of these ministers have passed away now. But during their lives, the strike had a deep impact on many of them, as it did on Reverend G.E. Patterson. He spoke to researchers in Memphis several months after the strike. And personally, I myself, my whole ministry, I think, has changed since the sanitation struggle. I always tried to avoid the, the civil rights movement, but I'm sold out to it now. Why did you try to avoid it before? Because I was like so many of the rest of my brothers and sisters, it felt like this is not my fight, you know. I mean, I knew that it was for the good of all of our people, but uh, I said, well, God has somebody for everything, and uh, he just did not intend for me to be a Martin Luther King, but I think that now he wants all of us to be Martin Luther Kings. <laughs> Reverend Patterson went on to become famous for his televised sermons. He also created charities to help young people and the poor. They couldn't organize on a lot of the work sites. So one of the things I taught them was the tactic of face-to-face. The chief strategist for the Memphis strike, Reverend James Lawson, is in his 90s now. He moved to Los Angeles a few years after the strike to continue his civil rights work. But his support for the labor movement continued as well. He began teaching local unions how to reach out to vulnerable workers in the community. You get them to connect with your organizers face-to-face, get them to walk through their problems, walk through their fears... They make connections with you. Some of the unions are becoming no longer trade unions, but social unions, community unions, justice unions. So unions are taking on the notion that we're not an auxiliary agency in people's lives, we're a main agency that enables people to join the struggle for truth and for community and for economic, social equality. Reverend Lawson has just come out with a memoir on his life and work. His story will join Michael Honey's excellent book, Going Down Jericho Road, as a source of information and inspiration for future generations who are seeking to understand the Memphis sanitation strike. The legacy of the strike may be felt most keenly by the children of the sanitation workers. Many of them, over the years, have come to see their fathers in a very different light. Let me say this. Being a child of a sanitation worker was embarrassing. Because people, if your dad or your mom worked for the sanitation department, people say, your dad's a garbage man. It was called garbage man. And to be honest, that was a shame. You know? But if I knew then what I know now, I would be proud to stand up and say, my dad a garbage man. 
My name is Michael Leach, the third son of Baxter Leach. I don't think us as a family really understood what they stood for. And it's just since the, the movement, when they start uh, acknowledging and talking about the sanitation workers, that I have got the understanding of what they stood for. And I'm just still blow out of proportion just thinking about what they stood for to take 1,300 uneducated mans to stand up for what they believed in, that they weren't gonna take it no more. We are men, we are not boys. And they went through a lot, you know. They were beaten, they were water hole, they were tear gas, but yet still they stood up. I'm Jonerson Ewell. I'm the youngest of three kids by Ozell and Florence Ewell. He was a part of the 1300 that went out on strike in 1968. Well, of course, we were small at the time. And as we got older, even in our preteen teens, that really didn't talk about it very much. You know, we began hearing about the strike, the striker sanitation, some of the events. So we started inquiring, asking questions. And moving forward, you know, it meant that no, you could no longer just treat us any kind of way. We do have the ability to stand for something and we can be united. And that's what the opposition didn't believe that we could do. And that's why when they tried to mar, they broke it up. When they tried to organize, they tried to tear it down. And Mayor Lowe didn't do what he did because it was the right thing to do. He was forced to. He didn't do it because, oh yeah, you're right. We're not treating you right, so let's make a change. No, he did it because of the pressure was so uh, heavy on him that his office had to do something. So they didn't give them what they deserved, but they gave more than they had. And that's exactly what Martin Luther King told the sanitation workers they had to do when he spoke to them just weeks before he was killed. I want you to stick it out so that you will be able to make Mayor Logan and others say yes even when they want to say no. It take courage to do what they did. It opened doors. So it was up to us. It was still hard. It wasn't like everything changed overnight. But more opportunity opened up. Changes began to change because of what they stood for. And the slogan Dad had was, stand up, don't sit down. And uh, that's, you know, he was speaking at one uh, occasion. And uh, he, he said, I'm a man. I stood up. Stand up. Don't sit down. And uh, that, 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 that was so neat. I said, that kind of <laughs> ran chill over my body you know, when he said that. And uh, he just hopped right on off the stage. So it's some great memories of my dad. Some great memories. So, I mean, me and my brother and my sister, that's one of the things we learned from Pop. You know, be committed to it. You know, fight the good fight. You know, it's not always going to be easy. But guess what? You can make it through if you put up some effort. He paved the way for so many. 
not only here in the city of Memphis, all over the country, there was a a sigh of now we this is the time that we can get some things changed. And it, it began, you know, on the shoulders of these giants. It did. Today, we honor and take inspiration from the sanitation workers and all the people who stood with them 55 years ago. But we also learn from their experience. What Dr. King and the Memphis Strikers made clear is that there can be no economic justice without racial justice, and no racial justice without economic justice. Unions exist to fight for that economic justice for workers and their families. And we can do that because when workers join together, We have collective strength. We'll continue to fight these battles until all workers have the freedom to join a union and the opportunity to work for fair pay and decent working conditions and with the respect they deserve. I'm Lee Saunders. The I Am Story podcast is an original series from the American Federation of State, County, and Municipal Employees and Ask Me President Lee Saunders. Tiffany Ricci is the executive producer. The show was narrated by me, Miriam Harris. Produced by Rhoda Metcalf and Bruce Edwards of Global Audio. Writing by Rhoda Metcalf. Recording, mixing, and sound design by Bruce Edwards. Editors are Rhoda Metcalf, Tiffany Ricci, and Bruce Edwards. Art direction by Chris Stiff. Thanks to the talented musicians at Epidemic Sound for the music. We would like to thank all the Memphis sanitation workers and their families who shared their stories with us. Dorothy Townsend for her guidance. The Walter P. Ruther Library at Wayne State University the Rhodes College and the University of Memphis for use of their invaluable archives. And a special posthumous thank you to David and Carolyn Yellen for doing such an incredible job documenting the events of the 1968 strike. Thank you to sanitation workers everywhere. Your work is important and you deserve respect, gratitude, and the right to a union. If you want to learn more about how being in a union can make a difference in your life, visit www.askme.org slash difference.